Over 20 plus years of preaching, I've kind of settled into a style, not because it's any good, but because it works for my feeble mind. I'm going to do something totally different today. I hate to write, and about four or five weeks ago, looking forward to this lesson, knowing that I wanted to get us to Ephesians 4 as a build-up to what we're going to do next week, which I'll talk about at the end of our lesson today, I started writing. And I don't know what happened, but I just kept writing. And so I put this lesson together, and I've written it out. And I'm going to do a little more reading than preaching today. And so if you're wondering why does Jason sound so weird today, it's because I'm doing something I don't normally do. But I acknowledge that words matter. And sometimes when you're trying to communicate something really important, like the gospel, words matter greatly. And so I want to share with you today a lesson I've put together in hopes that I will encourage you, but also challenge you. And so let's begin this morning. In the book of Acts, we find a beautiful description of what it looked like when the early disciples of Jesus gathered themselves together. For example, in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42, we read this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. You go on a couple chapters later into Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 31, and we read this, another beautiful description. After they prayed, it says, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. In modern American Protestant Christianity, of which we are a part, there seems to be two major ways of thinking about the structure and organization of the church. Number one, you have what I call the pastor-driven model. Authority lies with the pastor of the local church. He might have a board of overseers who work with him, but he is the decision maker. And number two, what I call the ecclesiastical model. Authority lies not with the local church body per se, but with church councils, or sometimes they're referred to as conventions or synods. But if you'll notice, both of these models are focused primarily on one question, the question of authority, who gets to be in charge, and who gets to make decisions. Furthermore, if we continue to look around us, we see a landscape in Christianity dominated by churches who are divided broadly into two groups of people, those on the stage and those in the audience. Those on the stage are primarily responsible for producing content. Those in the audience are primarily responsible for consuming that content. This model has proven popular because, at least in certain instances, it has produced churches with large numbers in attendance. 
Attendance has become the ultimate metric by which we measure success. We find ourselves then convinced that we are in a competition with every other church around us to produce the best content in order to gather the largest crowds. But let me go on a tangent here for just a second and offer a brief word about numbers or attendance. How big were the churches that we read about in the New Testament? We know from Acts chapter 2 and verse 41 that about 3,000 people were baptized on the day of Pentecost and added to the Lord's church. We know that the church in Jerusalem continued to grow, and by the time we get to Acts chapter 4 and verse 4, the number of men, the text says, came to about 5,000. But what happened soon after that? The church scattered throughout Judea and Samaria as a result of the persecution that Saul organized against them. And I would add quickly that that was all in accordance with Jesus' plan, wasn't it? You go back to the beginning of the book of Acts, and Jesus tells his disciples, you'll be my witnesses where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. It's all according to God's work. But beyond that, what do we know? How big was the church in Rome, for example? How many members made up the church in Corinth? How many people were in attendance on any given Sunday morning when the church in Ephesus gathered together? What about Philippi, Thessalonica, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira? You get the point. We don't know how large any of those congregations were. But what we do know, and what we are made aware of all the time, is how big some of the churches around us are. 5, 10, 15, 20, even 30,000 people gathered together in a single place on any given Sunday. Big churches indeed. And since they are big, and size is the primary metric for our success, then they must provide a blueprint for us to copy, right? There is, to be certain, nothing inherently wrong with large churches. Please don't misunderstand my point. On the contrary, wouldn't you love to see every seat here filled every time we gather together? Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you love to be encouraged by that number? Wouldn't you love to hear the singing? Wouldn't you love it if voices were coming from that balcony above us because we had to finish it and put seats up there? Of course we would love that. Of course. But the question is... Is it healthy to make size our primary metric? The question, actually, we should be asking ourselves is not, are we big, but rather, are we faithful? And more specifically, are we faithful to the vision of the church that Scripture provides for us? Christ did not task, I would remind you, the apostles with filling up auditoriums. He did, however, commission them with making disciples. Discipleship comes through relationship. And relationships are found in community. So what should this community of believers look like according to the picture painted for us in Scripture? This is the question at the heart of our own identity. In churches of Christ, we have attempted to do what we call a restoration. We have attempted to restore something. And what is it that we have tried historically to restore? Well, nothing less than God's vision for what the local church should look like. That's a big task, isn't it? We are a part of what is called the American Restoration Movement, an attempt to restore Christianity to a vision that God had for it. And so I want to ask a question this morning. How are we doing in that restoration work? How are we doing in our attempts to restore that picture of the local church? What we see in Scripture are autonomous, local congregations 
of God's people gathered together under the care and direction of shepherds or elders. These shepherds are given an enormous responsibility to nurture, to care for, to provide for, to feed, and to protect the flock of God's people that have gathered together. To the elders among you, Peter writes himself a shepherd. He says, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings who also will share in the glory to be revealed. This is the charge he gives to shepherds. He says, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. I'm so incredibly grateful for the men that we have here that serve as our shepherds. Evangelists and or ministers are supported financially by local congregations so that they can devote themselves to the teaching and preaching of the gospel. As we find in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul is addressing Timothy, himself a young evangelist, put in a local congregation by Paul, the church in Ephesus, to do the work of the local evangelist. This is what Paul says to him. He says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience. And I will tell you, that is the biggest challenge in ministry. With great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. And discharge all the duties of your ministry. There is a picture painted for us in Scripture of elders and ministers working together as partners in the kingdom on the, under the mutual authority of Christ himself. Let's give you a few examples. First Timothy chapter 5, again Paul writing to Timothy, and he says this, The elders who directs the affairs of the church are well worthy of double honor, especially those who work, whose work is preaching and teaching. For Scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out grain, and the worker deserves his wages. If you wonder what Paul's talking about there, I think he's saying that those shepherds who serve to the best of their ability are worthy of being financially supported for that work. Not that they always take that, but that they're worthy of that. And then he goes on, the worker deserves his wages. He says, do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. But those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove before everyone so that the others may take warning. I charge you in the sight of God and of Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. Timothy is working with the local shepherds. Furthermore, in Titus chapter 1 and verse 5, we read this. Writing to Titus, he says, The reason I left you in Crete, Titus, was so that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. This is the work that he was given as a local evangelist to make sure God's church was complete by appointing men who could lead and serve in that capacity. Now, 
what happens far too often is something different than that ideal picture we sometimes read about in Scripture. Our biblical model devolves into something rather worldly. And I want to be very clear here, very, very clear, that what I'm saying is in no way a commentary on or a critique of what is happening within the congregation here in Mission Viejo. Can everyone please at least nod to acknowledge that I'm saying that, okay? I need you to understand that so that you don't walk out of here wondering why Jason, Jason, Jason was so angry at us with what he said. I am not criticizing us. I am painting with the broadest, broadest brush possible this morning, okay? Just offering you some things to think about. What happens sometimes and in some places is that elders become a board of directors and ministers become viewed primarily as paid staff. The board of directors manage the staff the staff meet performance expectations, and again, the primary expectation for the staff is that they produce content for the church to consume. It is not uncommon at all in today's church landscape to find elderships and staffs at odds with each other over questions of authority, decision-making, expectations, and roles. So in other words, in our attempts to restore the church to the pattern that we see in Scripture, sometimes we end up falling back into the same ways of separating people within the church that has and continues to plague American Christianity. We end up with, again, two kinds of people. Those who are in charge, those who are not. Those who produce content and those who consume it. And so I have to ask the question, is there a better way forward? Well, of course I think there is. I wouldn't be up here if I didn't think there was. And I don't believe that it will come through abandoning our efforts at restoration. I think it will come by recommitting ourselves to those efforts. So what does Scripture teach us about what a local church community can and should look like? Well, a great deal, actually. But before we get into that, a few questions I'd like for you to consider. For many people... Church is somewhere you go. Church is a time, and it's a place. But what if church is much more than that? What if God is calling us as his church to something more than that? Are we satisfied with gathering a group of people into a building once a week and calling it church? Or do we feel the Spirit nudging us into something more intimate, more vibrant, more powerful, and more like what we see in the first few chapters of Acts. Now that's not to say that every church we read about in the New Testament was perfect. In fact, we're going to look at an excerpt from the church in Corinth here in just a minute. That was a church that struggled greatly with all kinds of problems. But I believe there is a pattern in Scripture that illustrates to us what God wants His local churches to look like. And so together, let's look at a couple of those examples. Let's start in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and I encourage you to follow along with me if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we're going to start in verse 12. And I don't have a lot of time this morning to really expound on these passages. I just want to share them with you because I believe they're beautiful. I believe they're powerful. And there's a couple things I want to point out as I go along. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 12. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, Just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, 
Whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. It would not, for that reason, stop being a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body. It would not, for that reason, stop being a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, and I want you to pay attention to this statement, but in fact, God has placed the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unrepresentable and treated, are, and treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it. So that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Those are all rhetorical questions because we know the answer is no. Every part is different, but every part is given a function. Not every function is the same, but every function is vital to the overall health of the body. I have, on this hand, five fingers. Pretty sure. Five fingers. I have, on this hand, five fingers. If you're looking for the six-finger man, I had nothing to do with the death of your father, so look somewhere else, okay? Really? No one? Princess Bride joke? All right, thank you. Okay. The reason I have five fingers on both of my hands is not because I decided in my mother's womb that five would be the best number to have for fingers on my hand. The reason I have five fingers on each hand is because God designed the human body to have five fingers on each hand. And I was fortunate enough that I have all of them still to this day. But there, at no point in my life have I looked down at my hand and thought, you worthless pinky finger, you lazy bum. About time you earned your keep around here. You know, I think I'll just remove my pinky finger because it's not doing as much as I think it should. I've never thought that. Maybe you have. I don't know. I just go about my business assuming that my fingers are going to do their job, right? But sometimes what happens is those parts you don't think about very much stop working or something is wrong with them. And then all of a sudden those parts you don't ever think about, you realize how vital they are. A few years ago I was out mountain biking had a, a little crash, and I mean a little crash, right? Get up, make sure everything's okay. And then I look down, and my ring finger is shaped like the letter Z. And I thought, ruh -roh. So, you know, miles from home, I pop it back in place and assume I'm okay. Well, by the time I get home, the thing looked like a bratwurst, which, oh, I forgot, I'm not in Wisconsin anymore. A bratwurst is a German sausage. It's like a big hot dog, okay? That's what it looked like, okay? Big spicy hot dog. In fact, Paisley still calls this my sausage finger. <laughs> I get home, my wedding band 
is like cutting into my skin. And so I panic, have Robin help me. We get out the Dremel tool and I have to cut the ring off my finger, right? And I've been too lazy to go get it fixed. But it's shaped weird and it hurts every day. I don't think about it most times, but at least twice every night I will wake up because I've slid this hand under my pillow and I'll wake up and it is just throbbing, right? I, I never in my life thought about what my ring finger does, but now that it doesn't work right... I think about it all the time. This is Paul's point in this analogy. That there is no member of the Lord's body that is not essential. And sometimes we don't realize that until they're not working like they should. And then it becomes apparent that there's something more that we need from that part of the body. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 11. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 11. So Christ himself, same idea. God puts the parts of the body together. Paul says in this text, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers. That's not an exhaustive list, by the way. He's just saying God gave certain individuals certain functions within the body so that the body can be healthy. Again, every body member does not have the same function, but we all have a function. And each of those functions is vital. He said he gave those to the body... Verse 12, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. When we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. And then it's this verse I want you to pay special attention to. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting Ligament, or I really like what the New American Standard Bible has there, but what every joint supplies grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. As each part does its work. I want you to spend some time this week. I'm pleading with you, spend some time this week in 1 Corinthians 12 and in Ephesians chapter 4. Meditate on those passages. Pray over those passages. Ask yourself the question, what does this mean for us collectively? And what does it mean for me as one of these individual parts in the body? What has God called me to and what work has he given me to accomplish in his body? One more word from the Apostle Paul and then we'll wrap this lesson up. In Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 19, just a couple chapters earlier. And I wish I had time to go through all of the book of Ephesians because the theme of Ephesians is this term that Paul uses over and over again, in Christ. What it looks like to be a part of his body and his church. And he lists so many beautiful concepts there. So sometime we'll take a deep dive into Ephesians. But in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 19 he says this, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together 
and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And you, in him, are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. We are a community of divine origin, of divine purpose, and of divine identity. You are here because God has called you here. He has made a place for you here. And he has work for you to do. You are vitally important to this body. None of us has been called to simply consume. None of us should have our role in the body reduced to spectator or audience member. Let's stop thinking about the church as if it's been divided up into those who produce and those who consume. Instead, let's embrace the picture of the body that we find in places like 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians chapter 4. A body of believers joined together by the Spirit of God, equipped to serve. Let's all work together to create an environment here in this congregation where every member is made to feel essential because you are, and where every member is given an opportunity to serve in whatever way God has called them. Listen, I understand that there are times in life when the most you can do, because of whatever trial you're going through, the most you can do is just show up. If you're in that place right now, and you just showed up this morning, I'm so grateful that you're here. But God is calling you to something more. And the Spirit is at work in you. I hope you feel His presence in your life. And I hope you feel His call to embrace the purpose He has set out before you. And I hope you read these passages and you're moved by them. And I hope you will take to heart something that we've talked about this morning. So let's move towards this goal together. And let's start next Sunday. We're going to do something different. Had this idea and the shepherds here were gracious enough to let me put this together I want to give you an invitation and a strong admonishment. I invite you to be here next Sunday. And I admonish you to be here next Sunday. Please make every effort to be with us as we gather together next Sunday. We're going to do a ministry fair. What is a ministry fair? I'm not exactly sure. We'll find out next week. <laughs> but here's the idea, okay? During service next week, we are going to highlight for you all of the various ways that you can get engaged in service in this body. Locally, in ways that serve the body itself. Globally, in ways that serve people you'll never even meet. And evangelistically, as we work together to serve the community and share the good news of Jesus Christ with those who have not heard it yet. But there are so many ways already present in this congregation for you to get engaged in service. And one of the things I love about what's happening here in this church is these are organic ministries. And what I mean by that is it's not us as a staff having organized all of these things and now you come and partake in these programs. It's not like that at all. These are ministries that members here have been called to undergo and partake in. And they've worked at building up these ministries and now they need help to carry out those ministries. And so we're going to talk about them briefly next Sunday morning as we gather together. We will share those ministries with you. I hope you'll listen. I hope you'll be encouraged. I hope you'll be excited. And I hope you'll say, I want to get involved. And so what we're going to do immediately after service is we'll have lunch prepared for you in the fellowship hall. We'll usher you out there, grab a plate of food, and then go out into our courtyard where tables will be prepared for those who lead our various ministries so that you can talk to them and say, you know what? 
when you talked about this, it got me excited. I think this is something I want to engage in. Tell me more. And those people will be ready to share that information with you and let you know how you can get engaged in serving. This is what we're going to provide for you next week. We need you to be here to engage in it, to be excited about it, and to take advantage of the opportunity that we're giving you. There is a picture painted for us in Scripture of something so very special. We're not here because we all decided that we had something in common and we should hang out more. We're here because God has called us together. He's formed us together. And he's turned us into a community that humanity on its own could never form. This is something special that we're a part of. Let's embrace what scripture is calling us to. You are vitally important to the work of the Lord's church. Embrace that calling in your life. And with that, the lesson is yours. Let's stand and let's sing one more song. If there's any way we can serve you today, if you are in need of encouragement, especially this morning, you think about life, if it's overwhelming and you're thinking, I don't know how I've got time or energy to serve any more than I already am. If you need encouragement, if we can pray with you, if we can serve you in any way, please let us know how. Let's stand and let's sing this last song together. If, you, if we can do anything for you, come forward and let us know. Let's stand and sing. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh my soul, worship His holy name. Sing like never before, oh my soul, I worship Your holy name. Thank you.